Before we get started, I want to do a quick land acknowledgement. As I record this from Colorado Springs, Colorado, I'm currently in the unceded territory of the Ute, Apache, Arapaho, Comanche, and Cheyenne peoples. I would also like to recognize the peoples whose land we recreate on. Welcome back to Snow Interesting. I'm your host, Matt Silverman. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of me talking about snow. It means so much to me that you're willing to take time out of your busy lives just to hear me ramble. I apologize for this episode being a little delayed. After almost two years, I finally had the misfortune of catching COVID, and as a result, I've had to sit on the script for a few weeks. On deck for this episode, we continue our discussion about snow pits and stability tests. The name of the game this week is data. We're going to start off by talking all about the different tests again, the results you might get from those tests, and how to interpret that data. After that, we're going to talk about how to interpret a full profile workup like the one I dropped in the last episode description. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hopefully after the last episode, you're at least somewhat familiar with what happens in a snow pit. But in case you forgot, here's a brief recap. The pit is composed of two main parts, the snowpack analysis and the stability tests. In the snowpack analysis, we look at the temperature gradient within the snowpack by measuring every 10 centimeters and do a rough density check with our hand hardness scale. The hand hardness scale also doubles as a tool to help us recognize and isolate layers that come from different storms or weather events. After the basic analysis, we go into our stability testing. The kind of baseline stability tests we went over last week are the compression test, seeing if we can get a weak layer to fracture easily, and the extended column test that sees if that weak layer we identified in the compression test has enough energy to propagate across the slope. Past the ECT, we can do a propagation saw test or a ruche block test to see just how volatile the slope is and if it will slide under normal forces that a skier could exert. As I said before, there are other tests available in the Snow Scientist toolbox, but these are the most common and easy to perform in the field. So now we've done the test, what comes next? Each test has a variety of results that we can see from them, and those results get coded into easy-to-read shorthand that tells you everything you need to know about the test. Each test is scored differently, but most of the results come in the form of a prefix that tells you if a fracture occurred, or when in the test it occurred, the specific tap it occurred on, or the location of the fracture, and a suffix that gives you a qualitative description of the fracture. Let's start with the standard compression test again. When completing the compression test, there are three sets of taps that advance in strength as you go through the test. The first 10 taps come with the heel of your hand resting on the shovel and tapping with your fingertips. The next 10 taps come from your elbow and the final 10 are delivered with your whole arm. More important than trying to measure a specific amount of force with your taps is ensuring that within each of the three stages, you're being consistent with the amount of force you deliver. Personally, I'm a fan of keeping a heavy pair of gloves on for any test that involves hitting the shovel. My go-to for this, and for any cold weather skiing really, is the guide glove from Black Diamond. Anything beefy like this will do the trick, 
but I would stay away from down mitts or any gloves of a similar vein since they're easier to rip and offer less impact protection. When you're recording the results from a compression test, it gets marked down by how easy it was to cause a fracture. If you were to fracture the column during isolation, like the pit I dug at Monarch a few weeks ago, it would be marked down as very easy, or CTV. If you get a fracture during the first 10 taps, it's called easy, or CTE. A fracture within the 10 taps from the elbow is considered to be moderately difficult and coded as CTM, and within the 10 taps from the shoulder is considered hard to fracture and coded as CTH. Last but not least, if you can't get a snowpack to fracture at all, it's simply called a no fracture and coded as, you guessed it, CTN. These last two results are the snowpacks we love to see, but at least out here in Colorado, CTN results aren't exceedingly common. I've only seen it happen once and it was at Wolf Creek Pass in the San Juans. The snowpack was so solid that we were able to pick up our column and throw it around without it fracturing. This is super rare. After the initial code comes the numerical description of the fracture or the number of the tap that fractured it. For example, if you were to get a fracture on the seventh tap from the elbow, it would be a CTM 17. Now that we have a quantitative measure of our fracture, we get to the most important part, a qualitative description. The qualitative description comes in two forms, shear quality and fracture character. As I briefly mentioned in the last episode, the compression test is the best test that we have for predicting avalanches and their severity. Within the compression test, the qualitative results are the most important data points we get. These qualitative scores are also used across other tests. Shear quality is recorded as Q1, Q2, or Q3. Q1 fractures are super scary. They describe fractures that are fast and clean. Q1 is divided into sudden planar and sudden collapse. Both sudden planar and sudden collapse are fast and clean fractures and indicate a very weak and usually very volatile layer in the snowpack. A sudden planar result is super clean and looks like somebody ran a saw through the layer. If you pick up the block that fractures, it looks like a mirror image of the base that's left in the column. An important characteristic of both these Q1 fractures is they happen suddenly. It doesn't crack a little bit on each test, it just gets progressively weaker and then the crack shoots through the snowpack all at once. A sudden collapse result is less dramatic but similarly scary. Rather than a sudden cracking causing the block to slide off, like in a sudden planer, it causes a weak layer to compress in on itself. Anybody that spent a lot of time on snow has felt woomphing. This is the same thing, just produced in a controlled manner. Q2 fractures are also commonly known as resistant planar fractures. The fracture spreads through the entire column, but won't slide under its own weight. It will be fairly easy to get it to slide with a shovel shear test, or you can simply lift the block up and off the column. The faces will often be textured and rough, rather than the smooth faces we associate with a sudden planar fracture. Next up, we have the Q3 fractures, or a non-planar break. This fracture is irregular and usually jagged. It'll often not extend through the entire column either. Because it likely didn't fracture completely, 
It would take a lot of force to get the block to slide through a shovel shear test or trying to pull it off. Straddling the edge between Q2 and Q3 is a progressive compression. Try saying that three times fast. A progressive compression is when a weak layer compresses more and more with each tap. Depending on the severity of the compression, it can either be marked as Q2 or Q3. That's at your discretion. The progressive compression character is a phenomenal example of why it's super important to be watching closely or having a partner watch closely as you tap. If you're absentmindedly tapping, waiting for a big dramatic result, it'd be super easy to miss one of these more subtle fractures and mistakenly think that the snowpack is more stable than it actually is. As with all the tests we do, we have snazzy little codes to talk about the fracture characters. A sudden planar is an SP. Sudden collapse is SC. Resistant planar is RP. Progressive compression is PC. And a non-planar break is BRK. If you haven't picked up on it yet, snow scientists aren't very creative with the abbreviations we use. Continuing that earlier example of a fracture on the seventh tap from the elbow, let's say it slid really cleanly and easily. It would be a CTM 17 Q1 slash SP. And to denote where that fracture occurred, you would write it in your notebook with a line pointing to the weak layer and right next to it, 123 cm, or whatever depth the fracture was at. Moving on from the CT to the ECT, our scoring gets a lot easier. The loading we put on the column for an ECT is the same as with the CT, with the addition of an extra tap after the block's first crack. This extra tap serves to see if we can get that propagation we're looking for in the ECT. We've already taken the snowpack to the breaking point, now we're going to push it a little further to see what happens. Similar to the CT, if the snowpack is too unstable to support itself when isolated and collapses or propagates upon isolation, that's terrifying and a big neon sign telling you that you should probably get out of there. It would get marked down as an ECTPV. Next, we have volatile snowpacks that have the energy to propagate across the block after N taps or N plus one. This will go down as ECTP and the number of taps it took. So if I got a propagation on my 12th tap, it would be an ECTP12. If you get vertical propagation instead of horizontally across the block, or in a very rare case, you keep tapping and get propagation on N plus six instead of N plus one, that would get marked down as an ECTN. If you were to get a fracture after you keep tapping, like my example earlier of N plus six, be sure to mark that down in your notes. That's a super important characteristic of the snowpack. Finally, we have the result we love to see, which is the ECTX. The ECTX indicates that the snowpack is so stable that it won't fracture at all, even after all 30 of our taps. Because we are measuring propagation and not shear in the ECT, we don't need to give it a Q score. Next on the docket, we're going to go back to the prop saw test, which is super easy to score. The PST results measure where or if the block gained enough momentum to continue the fracture line started by the saw. As with the rest of the tests, if the block collapses during isolation, it gets marked down as a PST-PV. 
If running the saw causes propagation through the entirety of the block, it's marked down as a PST, X, Y, end. X and Y are the important parts of this result, since they indicate how far up the block the saw went before the fracture took off on its own. X is the measure of where in the block the saw was, and Y is the total length of the block, which on a standard PST is 100 centimeters. So if your saw gets 65 centimeters into the cut, and then the crack goes all the way to the back, it would be a PST 65 slash 100 end. If instead of the crack traveling to the back of the block, it propagates vertically to the surface of the snowpack, it would be a PST XYSF. This is indicative of a heavy slab that doesn't quite have the energy to propagate, but the leverage caused by separating that weak layer causes the block to fracture. Our final class of fracture in the PST is a fracture that starts, but doesn't make it all the way through the column before stopping. This gets coded as a PST XYARR. Similarly to the PST SF, this weak layer has energy, but not quite enough energy to propagate. Just like with the ECT, we don't need to mark a Q score on the prop saw test. Since we're cutting the surface ourselves, a Q score would be frivolous anyways. With this test and the next test we'll talk about, the Ruch block test, it's important to note a reference point for your depth measurement. While I generally use the bottom of my pit as zero, if I'm doing a PST on a weak layer that's only 25 centimeters below the surface, it wouldn't make sense to dig out a whole 150 centimeter snowpack. So instead, I would put my measurement that the weak layer is 25 centimeters down from the surface. At the end of the day, this is science, and it's important to be clear and make your results as reproducible as possible. Finally, we have the Ruscht block test. The Ruscht block is very formulaic, and in my opinion, the easiest to score. Its scoring is on a scale of RB1 to RB7, and each of the numbers corresponds to a stage of the test. An RB1 is equivalent to a PV result in our other stability tests, or a snowpack that collapses during isolation. An RB2 would be if the snowpack collapses when the tester steps onto the block from above. The key factor here is that the initial loading gets placed within 35 centimeters of the back wall of the block. If the block were to fail on the third stage of the test, where the skier compresses the snowpack by bending their knees without lifting their heels, it would get recorded as an RB3. Stages 4 and 5, which correspond with scores RB4 and RB5, are when the tester jumps up and lands on the same spot that they already compacted. For the sixth and final jump, the tester has the option to remove their skis if the slab they're worried about is harder or deeper. Additionally, for this jump, the tester moves downslope roughly another 35 centimeters, so they're pretty central in the block. And finally, if you go through all this and don't get any fractures, the test is recorded as an RB7. In addition to the quantitative scores, the Ruch block test uses the Q score that we've come to know and love. But after the Q score, we throw in an additional measurement of how much of our block slid. If the whole block slides, we put a WB at the end. If 50 to 80% went, it would be considered most of the block and get marked as MB. Anything between 10 and 40% would be classified as the edge of the block and noted as EB. For example, a block that fails in a sudden planar manner 
on the second full jump at the same spot and takes roughly 75% of the surface would be an RB5Q1MB. I said this in the last episode, but exercise extreme caution when you're out there doing a Roosh block test. It's the most dangerous test that we do in the field since it has to be done in avalanche terrain and you're putting your whole body weight on it. If that block slides, you're likely going with it. I'll drop some videos in the episode description of some big roost block failures. This all might seem overwhelming, but it's pretty easy in practice once you get a few pits under your belt. There's some nuance to identifying the different results, but they're generally pretty straightforward. And while there's a lot of options to choose from, you by no means need to remember them all. The notebook I carry with me in the field has pages of references in the back that I keep bookmarked to help me keep all of the codes and scores straight. Whew, that was a lot of data. Now let's explore how we represent that data. Because trust me, if I started showing people my notebooks, they would have no idea what's going on. By putting the information in a standardized, easy to read format, we eliminate that confusion and allow anybody who needs or wants to, to be able to interpret the data for their own use. There's a variety of ways to put your data out there. My personal favorite is Snowpilot. I used to put everything in spreadsheets, but that got big and messy and honestly was even harder to read than my notebooks. Snowpilot is a free online service that lets you plug your numbers in and it spits them out into the big purple graph that you might have seen on avalanche forecasts or incident reports. But what does everything on that sheet mean? If you don't know what you're looking at, it could definitely be a load of gibberish. So let's go through and decipher it. I've put a link to a couple pits in the episode description for you to follow along if you're so inclined. At the top, we have the header. This will include all of the relevant geographic and meteorological data that tells the story of the snowpack. Starting at the left side of the page, we have the elevation, slope angle, aspect, and coordinates. All of this is super important in recreating the pits, or if a forecaster is looking at information on a specific problem they saw in their observations and are trying to see if other people have found similar problems. Further into the header, we get into other factors that affect the snowpack, such as air temperature, cloud cover, precipitation, and wind. All of this is super important in determining why a snowpack may be forming the way it is. After that, we get down to the main part of the workup, which is where it gets a little complicated. The left half of the page is our visual representation and is basically two graphs overlaid on top of each other. For both graphs, the y-axis represents snowpack depth. The lower x-axis is a measure of snow density on the hand hardness scale. While again, this is not the most accurate measure of density, and there's a spot for snow water equivalent, a more accurate density measurement, later on in the chart, the visual of the hand hardness is great for identifying weak layers. Essentially, the further left on the page the graph is, the denser it is and each variation of that level is a layer. So if you look at the pit I linked in the description labeled 2022-2, there's distinct layers at 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters, 110 centimeters, and 120 centimeters. This visual shows what's commonly known as an upside down snowpack. That is to say, there's a big slab of hard stuff on top of a bunch of soft stuff. 
This is pretty standard for most of the season here in Colorado. The other x-axis on the graph puts temperature data over the snowpack, which is important for understanding the metamorphosis that's occurring in the snowpack and gauging stability from it. As you can see from that same linked profile, the temperature varies greatly over the course of the snowpack, roughly 9 degrees Celsius per meter in that example. Also, its change isn't linear, so having it represented visually versus a bunch of numbers in a column is super nice. If you look in the middle of that big slab between 30 centimeters and 110 centimeters, you'll notice the temperature is more consistent here than other places in the pack. This is reflected with some nice rounding we saw in the crystals there, but that's a conversation for another time. Moving on to the right, we get into the grain section. Here we throw in what grain types we saw on the different layers and how big they were. As we talked about briefly in the last episode, grain type and size is a great tool we have for identifying how strong and cohesive a layer is likely to be. Continuing to the right, we have the column where we would put SWE, or snow water equivalent, if we took it. That's not likely something you're observing unless you're an avalanche professional, or just a super nerd that doesn't mind carrying the extra weight. Guilty as charged. Our final column is where you mark any stability tests you did and the results of them in that nice shorthand we spent so long discussing earlier this episode. Any other miscellaneous observations you make about specific layers can also be thrown in here. Well, that's about all I have for you today. I unfortunately did not get out skiing last weekend. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I've been stuck in isolation with COVID. There is, however, a bright side to that. Conditions weren't great last weekend, and they were even worse the weekend before, and I did get out skiing then right before I tested positive. I ended up taking a pretty sizable fall after my ski got caught in some near-surface facets under a bulletproof crust and twisted my knee weird. So, because I had COVID, I got some forced rest that will hopefully let me take the rest of the season without issue. Colorado is getting dumped on right now, so if you do get out there this weekend, be careful. New snow loading on top of a layer of weak facets from an extended dry spell like we just had is a recipe for some good storm slabs to brew up. At the time of recording this episode, Wednesday evening, February 23rd, the cake has six of the state's seven avalanche zones marked as high risk, with five of those flashing as an avalanche warning. The remaining four zones are still at a considerable risk. If you want to know more about the storm coming in and how it may affect your weekend recreation, be sure to head over to the San Juan Snowcast and listen to their episode from today. Chris has some great observations and recommendations on how to still get out this weekend. Thanks for tuning in. As always, feel free to follow me on Instagram at matt.silverman. And if you have any ideas for topics you want to hear or guests you'd like to hear on the show, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear them. Snow Interesting is produced in association with the Colorado College Outdoor Journal. The show is written and produced by me, Matt Silverman. Special thanks to the Colorado College Journalism Institute for making this show possible.